Well, hey, good morning, family. Good morning, you guys. It's so good to see everyone in here this morning. Are we doing okay today? Good, good. It sounds like you guys are awake at least a little bit, right? We doing all right today? Good, good. That was a little better, not much better, but a little bit better. So, um, hey, guys, listen, if you're new, we just want to say welcome. We thank you so much for joining us today. We're just super blessed you're here. We hope and pray you can call this place home in your walk with Christ. And so, got a few announcements for everyone this morning. Um, again, if you're new, a couple things specifically for you. Uh, we have a Calvary Chapel app that's out there free, available for download for the church. Um, it's out there on, the, uh, on the, your Play Store. You can download it for free. Um, it's a great resource to utilize if you want to know what's getting, or if you want to get in the know around the church, if you want to know uh, what's going on and get in the know and get plugged in and that sort of thing. It's a great resource for you. You can also see our Calvary Chapel Community Facebook group out there. It's a private group. You have to request to join, but just search for that. Calvary Chapel community on Facebook, and you should be able to find it. And then lastly, if you're interested in serving in any capacity around the church, we have that Yes, I Will board out there. It doubles as an announcement board, so just keep your eye on that. You can uh, keep up to date with, going, what, with what's going on around the church. And you can also grab one of those cards if you're interested in serving in that capacity and just fill out the information on the back and get it turned into the Connect desk, and the area leader will contact you, okay? So... Uh, th coming up, we've got Saturday, May 6th at 8 a.m. We've got the next men's breakfast going on. That's going to be at Granny Shapers uh, in Webb City. That's the Granny Shapers on range, range Line. Again, that's May 6th at 8 a.m. If you have any questions about that, you can go see Jody. Um, if you are a male and you attend this church, you are welcome to attend. Okay. And then we also have the tour of Joplin that we're going to do. That's just kind of a fun whole church event. If you want to get signed up for that, the date for it is Saturday, May 13th. Okay, so we're going to be meeting at the uh, museum complex at 10 a.m. over there. I think that's next to Shipperdecker Park, I believe. And then um, after the museum, we're going to head to the falls and then Wildcat for a picnic lunch. So it should be lots of fun. Anyone who wants to come can come. Um, just like I said, if you have any questions about that, you can see Pastor Russ. But that's Saturday, May 13th. Get signed up for that uh, whole church event. Bring the whole family. should be lots of fun. So uh, with that being said, I think we'll go ahead and bring forward the ushers and the greeters. We will receive today's tithes and offerings, and if you give mobily, now would be the appropriate time to do so. So let's pray. Lord, we just thank you so much for your goodness, Lord, your grace, your mercy. Lord, there is no greater honor than to get in your word, to serve you, Lord, to worship you. We're just so grateful and thankful that we get to do that freely in this place today, Lord, and every day. We just thank you so much for that. We just ask that you have your hand over these tithes and offerings, that they just go to bless you. Father, they just go to bless those who are in need. God, they will further your kingdom. We ask those things in Jesus' name.
Good morning, church. Wonderful to see you today. Yep. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, there's always the woo. All right, all right, all right. Feels dark up here. Hell for me to. Guys, who needs a Bible? We want to get one put in your hand so you can follow along with us today. If you need one, please raise your hand. Don't be uh, shy or embarrassed about that. We want to get God's Word in your hands. Uh, if you've got it, then that's great. Let's go get straight into it. We're going back uh, into our Old Testament, the book of Isaiah. We finished chapter 27 last time we were here. We're going to kick off today in chapter 28. We're going to look at it in its entirety. We've got a lot of territory to cover. We want to get directly into it, a message entitled, A Determined Destruction. And so let's take our hearts before the Lord. Father God, we just thank you so much for your love and your grace and your mercy, God. We thank you, Lord, for your forgiveness toward us. We pray, God, that you would now minister to and speak to us, God, that you would help us to stay attentive, Lord, and that we would have ears to hear you and that we would be appropriately responding to you. And so move uh, by the power of your spirit, breathe life into this time. We'll give you praise in Jesus' holy name. And everybody say, Amen. Amen. Guys, let's remember at this point in the nation of Israel's history, it is divided into two kingdoms, okay? By way of reminder, Israel's in the north, Judah is in the south. Judah has the capital city of Jerusalem. Hey, Judy, great to see you today. And uh, sorry, guys, sorry, don't worry about that. It's great to see you, Judy. Uh, Judah has Jerusalem as its capital, and so Israel declared Samaria to be its capital. Uh, the most prominent tribe in the northern kingdom was Ephraim. And so there will be times when the Lord addresses the northern kingdom, and you may hear a reference to Israel. You may hear a reference to uh, Ephraim. You may hear a reference to Samaria. It's all talking about they all refer to the same place. Now, how many of you have discovered that our sin looks much worse on other people? Come on now. Meaning that you tolerate sin in your own life, but when you see that same sin in someone else's life, it just seems so terrible. You know, you lie about something, you give yourself a little grace and all, but you catch someone else lying, man, you're ready to call for the judge, the jury, and the hangman. And Jesus addressed this syndrome when he said, Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. He said, Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. You know, one day Nathan, the prophet, he comes to King David, and he says, you know, King, I've got a story for you. And I mean, who doesn't like a good story? And so the king says, well, share on. He says, well, there was a poor man in your kingdom who owned one little lamb, just one little you lamb, and my, how he loved that lamb. I mean, it ate from his dish, it drank from his cup, it even slept in his bed, King. I mean, this, this little lamb was like a member of the family. It was like a little child to him. But then a would-be stranger, a traveler, came through the, the territory, and a a rich man, a wealthy man, one that had more flocks and livestock than he knew what to do with. Well, rather than uh, provide for the stranger out of his own flock, he took that one little lamb from the poor man and he slaughtered it and he, he used it to take care of the traveler. And David got all irate. He's like, who is this man? Bring him to me and I'll have him put to death. And Nathan looks at the king. He says to the king, he says, David, you are the man. And he began to speak to him of his sin with Bathsheba and how she was all that Uriah had and how David took him and murdered him and tried to cover it up so he could have Uriah's wife for himself. And David said, I have sinned. And Nathan said, and God has put away your sin and you shall not die. You know, David was ready to put this other man to death. God, Nathan says, uh, listen, God's going to have mercy on you. You, you won't die. He's not going to do to you what you would have done to the other. But once David saw his sin in someone else, he could see how ugly and how terrible and how reprehensible it truly was. It provoked in him a heart of repentance. And ladies and gentlemen, that's what God wants. And here in chapter 28 of the book of Isaiah, 
he begins by addressing the sin of Israel, but then he does the old switcheroo, the old bait and switch, if you will. He turns the tables and switches the focus to Judah, and the desire is to bring forth the fruit of repentance. And so let's turn our attention to the very first verse of the 28th chapter, the book of Isaiah, where we read, Woe to the crown pride to or the crown of pride to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower, which is at the head of the verdant valleys, to those who are overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has a mighty and a strong one, like a tempest of hail and a destroying storm, like a flood of mighty waters overflowing, who will bring them down to the earth with his hand. To the crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim will be tramp or the crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim will be trampled underfoot, and the glorious beauty is a fading flower, which is at the head of the verdant valley, like the first fruit before the summer, which when an observer sees, he eats it up while it's still in his hand. In other words, there's an excitement, there's a joy about it. He's gonna take care of, he's gonna get to it. So, guys, as you can see. The chapter begins by addressing a sin situation in Israel that had gotten so bad, it had gotten so out of control that he brought them, it had brought them to a, a place of such decadence and degeneracy and depravity that God drew attention to it on a national level. And that, of course, is the sin of drunkenness. And guys, I know that we live in a culture that just loves to glom on to the fact, and it is a fact, that the Bible does not strictly condemn drinking alcohol. But alcoholism and drunkenness, it speaks to very clearly. There is zero ambiguity about the fact that God fully condemns drunkenness. The Bible is clear that God wants you to be about the full spectrum of your senses. He wants your senses sharp, your ability to discern and to act and, if necessary, react at peak levels. Guys, just write these references down and look at them later, okay? Or take a picture of it, whatever. They all contain commands and warnings against drunkenness. In fact, when you get to Luke's gospel, Jesus very specifically warns against drunkenness in the last days. Quick questions. How many of you... Quick question, how many of you have a sneaking suspicion that we live in the last days? Come on now, so turn with me together. Let's go to it. Turn to the right in your Bible to Luke chapter 21. Let's look at it together. So, you know, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and let's get to the 21st chapter, okay? Luke chapter 21, drawing your attention specifically beginning in chapter, or pardon me, verse... 34. Luke 21, beginning in verse 34. Jesus speaking here, he says, But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, that is, with partying, drunkenness, and the cares of this life. And that day come on you unexpectedly, for it will come as a snare. Uh, on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. I find it interesting that of all the things that Jesus could have warned us about concerning the last days, that time just before He returns... He chose to issue a warning about excessive drinking. Ladies and gentlemen, you and me, we need to be sober concerning the times to which the Lord, the culture, the climate that He has called us to, caused us to be alive in. And guys, I know that it's a global issue, but concerning the culture to which God has called us to, our society pays a terrible price for drunkenness. Now, not only upon the individual, certainly when you see the soul that, or the toll, pardon me, that alcoholism takes upon the individual, you know, the devastation, the ruin that it works in their lives, it can be absolutely overwhelming. But guys, 
you, you realize, right? You understand it never stops with the individual. The extended cost of alcoholism is equally as staggering as it dismantles families and it leads people to poverty and it strips people of dignity and it absolutely destroys their lives. The latest research demonstrates that over 140,000 people per year die in the United States alone due to alcohol-related causes. Over 10,000 people per year are killed in drunk driving incidents, accounting for over 30% of all traffic fatalities. There's about one traffic fatality due to some kind of alcohol-related incident. It's about once every 45 minutes in this country. And the cost of excessive drinking upon the United States economy is nearly $250 billion annually. And not only that, drunkenness is behind, not only speaking of just the, 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 the fatalities that are related to alcohol specifically, but then many other crimes are related to alcohol as well. Many violent crimes, many sexual crimes, or people who become victims of these crimes are often drunk. Studies estimate that between half and three-quarters of all sexual assaults involve alcohol consumption, either by the victim or the offender, many times both. And in the upwards of 81% of all college rape situations involve alcohol, be it by the perpetrator, or the victim, or both. Ladies and gentlemen, what I'm trying to draw your attention to here is that drunkenness was a problem in Isaiah's day, but listen to me, it is a problem of epidemic proportions in your day as well. All right, now there's a big tirade, there's a big campaign against a certain political or with a certain political party to try and get rid of all your guns. And they say, well, you know, because of the crime and this and that. And there are between 48 and 50,000 people a year that die because of uh, gun-related incidents. Now, that's not all, uh, you know, murder. There's maybe about half of that's murder. But you're talking suicide, accidental death, hunting accidents, law enforcement, these kinds of things all together add up to about a third of what alcohol causes. And yet there we celebrate alcohol. The people of Israel were wearing a crown of pride. They weren't praying, they were partying. And God tells them, your glorious beauty is a fading flower. Again, drunkenness, alcoholism makes everything good, everything beautiful and glorious in your life wilt and fade away. It'll take your family, it'll take your friends, it'll take your finances, it'll take your home and leave you with nothing. Woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards, to those who are overcome with wine. Listen to me. When alcohol overcomes you, you are in sin. When it impairs your senses, your thinking, your judgment, your reflexes, you're overcome with wine. It's called sin. If we feel compelled to drink or have difficulty not drinking or are secretly ashamed of our drinking we're overcome with wine it's sin and this word overcome in verse one literally means to strike down or listen to hammer it's the same word used in judges chapter 5 and verse 26 when jl pounded a tent peg through the head of sisera nailed him to the floor when you get drunk, when you get hammered, right? That's what you're doing to yourself. Guys, it's like running a tent peg through your head. I mean, you're gone. And as long as we're on the subject, I want to... Allow me to clarify something here about what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. We read there, And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation but be filled with the Spirit. And there have been those who have read this verse and to their own shame interpreted it to mean that if you are filled with the Holy Spirit, it'll kind of like be, it'll be kind of like being drunk. And they call it, in fact, being drunk in the Spirit. And it couldn't be further 
from the truth of what Paul was talking about in that particular passage or any passage of the Word of God. What an insult to the Spirit of God. Guys, Paul was not comparing the two. He was contrasting the two. Alcohol is a depressant. It depresses your senses. You're sluggish. You're unable to think straight, to talk right, to walk right. Paul says that's not what you want to be about. That's not what you're to do. The Holy Spirit, on the other hand, is a stimulant. He heightens your senses. You think soberly. You speak clearly. You act appropriately. The fruit of the Spirit, you see, is self-control. Don't be drunk with wine, he says. Be filled with the Spirit of God. Now, When it comes to sin in a person's life, God generally ascribes one of two courses of action depending on how the person responds to the instruction of His Word. Deliverance or discipline, even leading at times to destruction. God says, I have a mighty one a strong one like a tempest of hail and a destroying storm who will bring down the proud, who will eat them up excitedly. You see, as like the first fruits on the fig tree uh, with a ferocity, just, you know, just vehemently just attack. You see, he's speaking of the Assyrian army who would invade them, have no mercy on them and just level them to the ground, just attack them uh, with a ferocity, excitedly. And in verse 5, it says, In that day the Lord of hosts will be for a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of His people, for a spirit of justice to Him who sits in judgment, and for strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. The flower of Ephraim will fade, but the beauty and glory of the Lord will remain for the remnant of His people. A couple things here real quick. Number one, You might just make mental note or underline it there in your Bible. God always has His remnant. It does not matter how dark, how decadent the culture or the climate may become. There will be those few who remain faithful to God. God was going to dole out judgment, but there would remain a remnant. And to them, God would become, he says, even more central to their lives, a greater glory to their lives than ever before. It's like, you know, clinging clinging to the rock, yeah, being anchored to the rock. Guys, I just want you to realize God has a way of removing the dross from our lives. Any of you discover that? So that he has his rightful place. Let me put it to you like this. Think about what you glory in. What is it that has the greatest value to you? What is the diadem of beauty, if you will, in your life? You know, sometimes we glory in our accomplishments. You know, we feel a sense of value when people ooh and awe over what we've done. Sometimes it's people we know. We like to drop a name here or there because it makes us feel important to be associated with certain people. God would have us derive that sense of importance, if you'll allow me, that sense of value from the fact that we know Him. Listen to what Jeremiah writes. Jeremiah chapter 9, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, Let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight, says the Lord. Amen? Now, as for verse 6, you might just write it down, etch it in the margin of your Bible. God's calling is God's equipping. Or if God enlists you, He will enable you. 
If he called them to sit in judgment, there he is, you know, the, 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 the remnant of his people, and, and, and they're making decisions on his behalf. He says, look, I'm going to equip you with a spirit of justice. To those he called to the battle, he says, I'll give you strength. God will never call you where he does not first equip you. Now, the enemy will always offer pushback, won't he, to the servant of God. But greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. God will give you strength. By the way, we might see that embedded within this principle that where God calls you, He equips you. Where He enlists you, He enables you. You might see in this principle, kind of in a deductive fashion, the fact that in and of ourselves, we don't have the wisdom. We don't have the strength necessary to uh, turn back the battle at the gate. Okay? Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so, uh, you know, we're to be strong in the Lord. And in the power of His might. Look, just write it down. You can read it later. It's Isaiah chapter 40 and verses 28 through 31. Isaiah 40 verses 28 through 31. Now, at this point you might envision the people, the prophets, the priests of Judah thinking, Yeah, go get them, Zay. You know, you tell them. Remember that my sin looks really bad on you, principle at play. Well, look at verse 7. But they also have erred through wine and through intoxicating drink uh, are out of the way. The priests and the prophet have erred through intoxicating drink. They are swallowed up by wine. They are out of the way through intoxicating drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. For all the tables are full of vomit and filth. No place is clean. And so he mentions here the priest, the prophet. He lists the same sins again. We draw the conclusion. This is where he turns the tables. And he begins to speak to the nation of Judah. And he's saying, hey, look, I noticed that you uh, can see that proverbial speck in your brother's eye real good. Man, there it is. It's standing out. It's just shining there for you. And, you, man, it's so clear. But why aren't you just as eager to deal with that four-by-four four post in your own eye? You know, you're seeing that speck out there in your brother's eye, that little fleck of, of, of sawdust. But there you are with that big four-by-four four hanging out your eye. You know, you know, you're not looking at it very well. And he says here, look, uh, and, you know, because perhaps they're rejoicing. The judgment's coming to their rival kingdom over the degeneracy, the, the depravity, the immorality and degeneracy and all. But Isaiah says, don't deceive yourselves. Don't think the judgment won't find you. You're guilty of the same things. As priests and prophets, they were set in place to be examples to the people. Yet there they are, and they're staggering around the city all drunk. Notice they are swallowed up by wine. What an inversion. Instead of them being the ones in control and drinking, it's like the wine is now consuming them, you see. They're swallowed up by wine. They're out of the way through intoxicating drink. Out of what way? Out of the way of wisdom. The idea is that they're no longer walking in God's way, honoring God's word or God's will. Their counsel to the people wasn't coming from the Spirit of God. They're out of the way. They're speaking out of their own drunken delusions. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. They're not giving godly counsel, you see. Guys, alcohol will get you off track with God. It will impair your judgment, your ability to discern and distinguish between holy and unholy, clean and unclean, right and wrong. Guys, it blurs the line, and that's not good. Now, in verses 9 and 10, we have a mocking response of the drunken prophets and priests as they ridicule Isaiah's message rather than repent of their sin. Look at verse 9. Whom will he, that is the prophet, you see, whom will he teach knowledge? And whom will he make to understand the message? Those just weaned from milk, those just drawn from the breasts, for precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little. They're mocking the simplicity of the man of God's message. 
You know, this guy talks to us like we're toddlers, as if we're just weaned from the breast. Precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little. Who do you think we are? Ladies and gentlemen, this is not the response of a people who are receiving the message. They are rejecting the message. They're saying, look, Isaiah, your message might be okay for the children's ministry, you see, but you're out of league with us, brother. I mean, they were, it was this, we're too spiritually sophisticated for you. Imagine, okay, imagine here you are. This little Midwestern podunk kind of person. Right? That's who you are. It's who I am. These are my people, right? We're just little Midwestern podunk kind of people. And, you know, here you are, and, and you go to deliver a message from God to the Ivy League elites of our day. You know they've got master's degrees in theology. They've got doctorates in divinity. They speak fluently in Greek and in Hebrew and, and in Latin and all of that. Man, they're the real intelligentsia. And here you are, you've never even been to Bible school, you live in this small town, and you're going to presume to give them a message from God. These guys are dogging Isaiah. They're making light of the simple nature of his message. And guys, this happens today. People can be so intoxicated through intellectual pride that they mock the simple message of the gospel given by a humble witness. But the truth is that in their mocking of Isaiah, they actually pay him a great compliment. Listen to me. I'm telling you, there is, it is a wonderful thing to be presented the truth of God's Word, precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little. Listen to me. Properly presented, God's Word will feed both the new believer and the seasoned saint together. God loves His Word presented with such simplicity that there are no excuses. Everyone understands and has to make a choice concerning what they've been confronted with regarding how they're going to respond to it. I understand it. Now what am I going to do about it? That's the question. Once you understand a principle, once you understand a precept, ladies and gentlemen, it has to move beyond information and education. It has to become application. What am I going to do about it now? And God brings us to this point with confrontation in His Word. These guys have responded by rejecting it. And so Isaiah will tell them, well, if you will not respond to the simple straightforward message of the Word of God in your own language, well, God's going to get your attention. He's going to speak to you in a language that you don't understand. Look at it in verse 11. For with the stammering lips and another tongue, He will speak to this people, to whom He uh, said this, what people? To the people whom he said, this is the rest with which you may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. But the word of the Lord was to them precept upon precept, uh, precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little. Why? That they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and caught. Now, uh, verse 13 is a reference to the Assyrian army, later on the Babylonian army. Uh, but here in verse 11, he says, look, if you don't want simple speech that you can understand, I'll give you stammering lips, another tongue which you can't understand. In other words, if you guys won't learn through the word, then you will learn through war, is what he's telling them. Guys, can I just tell you? that you do not want to be found in a place whereby you are fighting against God. It is a war you cannot win. If we reject the simple, straightforward message of the Word of God, He is more than capable of finding other ways to 
communicate to the hard-hearted and obstinate. God offered them rest. He offered them times of refreshing. They would receive it through repentance. Write it down. Repentance leads to times of refreshing. It's the principle that Peter presented in Acts chapter 3 when he said, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. Notice, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. God wants to give us rest, but if what you want is war, then just refuse to listen. Yet they would not hear. Listen, ultimately, God's work against sin, as we've made mention, is either deliverance or ultimately destruction. And we decide which end of the spectrum we're going to be on based upon repentance or rebellion and rejection of God's word. But guys, let's not blame God when we will not hear. Let's not blame God when we won't respond in repentance. The word, of the, the, the word of the Lord is given precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little. Again, this is the right way to give God's word to His people. He doesn't say, and the word of the Lord is given topic by topic. Now, listen, I'm not saying that a topical doesn't have its place. But the idea here is that we need all of God's word. Not a single line should be overlooked. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Give it out simply. Give it out straightforward. It's how we grow. Guys, you are not going to get all your answers through some sort of two-week shotgun course on life. It's the slow, steady grind of getting into God's word. And allowing God's word to get into us. And it creates accountability before God. They heard it. They did not respond in repentance to it. Therefore, they fell backward, were broken, snared, and caught. Listen. When the message is so simple that even a child can understand yet one chooses to reject it and to mock it, that does not wind up well for them. It results in destruction and judgment. Therefore, look at verse 14. Hear the word of the Lord, you scornful men, who rule this people who are in Jerusalem, because you have said we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol we are in agreement when the overflowing scourge passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge, and under, and under falsehood we have hidden ourselves. Wow. God calls the leaders of Judah scornful men. You know, men who, uh, they're, they're scorning, they're mocking, they're rebelling, they're rejecting, they're thinking more highly of themselves than they ought. They considered themselves too mature too advanced for the word of the Lord to be given to him in such a simple and straightforward fashion. These guys were doctorates. You see, they were masters. You see, why, why are you giving it to me line, line by line, precept by precept, here a little, there a little, just you know, going straight through it like this, man? We want to really... And they were confident that they had nothing to worry about. They weren't concerned with the threat of death because, well, if you know, historically, they had made alliances, you see, about political agreements and all. And they were confident that the scourge, you know what a scourge is, a scourge is a whip, that the scourge of God's judgment and correction wouldn't really come against them. It wouldn't really do anything to them. Because they thought with their alliances, when the other nations came against them, they'd just thwart them, they'd just go, you know, they would, they would win the war, whatever. They would, Look, we've got Egypt on our side. We've got these other, you know, uh, world superpowers on our side. We're not worried about this, is essentially what they're saying. But God told them, you are trusting in lies. You're taking cover under falsehood. Guys, think about how often this happens today. This is what people do. 
when they refuse to believe God's word. Listen, if you won't believe the truth, you have to take refuge in a lie. There's no two ways about it. There is no other alternative within it. And people believe the lie, don't they? Well, you know, I'm a pretty good person. I think God will let me into heaven on my own merit. I mean, I don't, I've never killed anyone. I don't steal things. I mean, I'm a pretty good person. And they take refuge in the lie. Or that they can have a saved soul with no evidence of a changed life. Well, you know, I was baptized when I was 10. I'm, I'm good. I, I'm a member down at so-and-so Christian church. And I think I'm good with God. You know, I mean, n- nothing about my life brings forth any evidence of salvation or sanctification. But, you know, I've jumped through the hoops. I've dotted the I's. I've crossed the T's. I'm good. Or that things were so great at some point in their lives previously that they can just kind of coast on that, though things are completely in disrepair presently. You know, they take refuge in in some sort of past type thing, lifestyle, whatever. Or, Or some people take refuge in the lie. They don't even believe God exists. I don't think there is a God, so I'm not worried about it. They've hidden themselves under falsehood. Guys, it's a, it's a house of cards. It's building your house upon the sand. But I'm telling you, the storm's coming. Let's look, verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. Also, I will make justice the measuring line, righteousness the plummet. The hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and the waters will overflow the hiding place and your covenant with death will be annulled and your agreement with Sheol will not stand when the overflowing scourge passes through then you will be trampled down by it as often as it goes out it will take you for morning by morning it will pass over day and night it will be a terror just to understand the report let me say it simply Don't anchor yourself to lies. Tether yourself to build upon the sure foundation, a tried stone, the precious cornerstone. And ultimately, we know this would find its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 6. He is the sure foundation upon which we build our lives. And I want you to notice that God is the one who lays the foundation. He says, I lay in Zion. Look, we cannot provide an adequate footing or foundation for our lives. That's God's work. And He accomplish it, accomplishes it through Jesus Christ. And we note that the one who builds their life on and is anchored to Christ will not act hastily. What does that mean? It means, man, you're not in a panic You're not running here and going there in some sort of rush around anxiety. You're able to face adversity with peace that passes understanding because your life is established on the rock and God keeps it in line straight through justice and righteousness, he says. If you're building upon lies, upon falsehood, then when the storms come, man, the hail will sweep it away. The waters will overflow and overwhelm it. Guys, this is where you just write down so you can look it up later. For time's sake, we're just going to carry on here. But write it down. Look it up later. Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. And God says, this is what they've done. Therefore, they would be destroyed, unable to stand. In other words, he says, look. He's annulling their covenant with death. You say you've made a covenant with death. God says, I'm annulling that covenant. Again, the only way to avoid the determined destruction of God's judgment is to be found in 
built upon the rock who is Jesus Christ. Any other plan, any other refuge, any other hiding place will be washed away. It's taking refuge in a lie. Now, look at verse 20. For the bed is too short to stretch out on, the covering is so narrow that one cannot wrap himself in it. For the Lord will rise up. These were these great victories that Israel had, but he's saying they'll be like this only against Israel. For the Lord will rise up, or Jerusalem and Judah, will rise up at Mount, as at Mount Perizim. He will be angry as in the valley of Gibeon, that he may do his work, his awesome work, and bring to pass his act, his unusual act. Now, therefore, do not be mockers, lest, oh, guys, underline it. Do not be mockers, lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard from the Lord God of hosts a destruction determined even upon the whole earth. Wow. They've made their bed through ungodly agreements, ungodly alliances. And God says, you know what? I'm going to let you lie down in it. But the bed is too short. The covers are too narrow. They're short sheeting themselves. That's essentially what he's saying. I mean, how, I mean, how many of you know the miserable experience of going somewhere and the bed kind of your feet kind of hang off and then the, short, the, the sheets don't really co cover you or maybe they're off your feet or, and all night you're just kind of tossing and turning and you're just kind of miserable. You don't get good sleep. There's no rest. There's no comfort. I mean, you've been short sheeted. What's the application that God's giving here? He says, look, true rest is only found in Jesus Christ. Any other bed, any other refuge or place of rest is too short. It'll come up short. It won't suffice. A rejection of God will give you no rest, no peace, no security, no warmth, no comfort. Don't go after the short beds and narrow coverings of the world, he says. The rest for your soul is in Christ alone. The unusual act that he talks about here is that of disciplining his people by means of an ungodly nation. I just, guys, I'm not going to digress, but I just think there's such parallels to where we are at right now in our own nation. Oh, war would never take place on our shores. It'll never happen on our watch. We've made a covenant. You see, we've got, we're strong. We don't, we're not worried about it. We're going to be fine as though the scourge of God's judgment is going to pass over us. There won't be no nation that ever invades us. Oh, be careful. Wow. Don't be mockers lest your bonds be made strong. God will not be mocked. If you scoff and mock, it's only going to make matters worse, you see. He says, don't be a mocker, lest your bonds be made strong. Think about that. Now, in verse 23, guys, we're going to read through the rest of this. It all is all concerning the same principle or precept, okay? So let's read through the end of the chapter here. He says, give ear and hear my voice. Listen and hear my speech. I, I Look, every Bible should have that underlined. I'm just going to say it. Does not, or pardon me, does the plowman keep plowing all day to sow? Does he keep turning his soil and breaking the clods? When he has leveled its surface, does he not sow the black cumin, scatter the cumin, plant the wheat in rows, the barley in the appointed place, and the spelt in its place? Underline it. For he instructs him in right judgment. His God teaches him. For the black cumin is not threshed with the threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over the cumin. But the black cumin is beaten out with a stick and the cumin with the rod, bread, uh, must be or flour, bread flour must be ground. Therefore, he does not thresh it forever, uh, break it with his cartwheel, or crush it with his horsemen. Underline this. This also comes from the Lord of hosts, who is wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance. Can you say amen to that? The Lord God of hosts, who is wonderful in counsel 
and excellent in guidance. Verse 23 says, God says, Listen and pay attention to my words. This is great advice. God says, Listen and pay attention to my words. He says, Consider the farmer. Does he just plow and plow and plow and never sow? Or does he plow and then level the soil and then plant the seed? And when he plants the seed, does he just scatter it all together indiscriminately? Or does he take the pains to recognize what he's working with and give each kind of seed the attention that it needs at using different tools at different times to bring about the desired result? Now God says, look, the farmer knows how to use each tool for each kind of seed because I've given him right judgment. By the way, we're getting ready to close. I don't know who our person is, but I want to get to the point here. God is saying that he is like a wise farmer. He's saying, look, can you just trust me to be at least as wise as a farmer? He's saying, I'm like the wise farmer. He knows what tools to use in our lives at the right times and seasons of our lives to bring forth fruit in our lives. Can I say that again? God knows what tools to use in our lives at the right times and seasons of our lives that He might bring forth fruit in our lives. He doesn't plow forever. After the soil is prepared, He sows, He plants, He waters. And even when the harvest comes, the threshing process varies depending, it's determined by what he's working with. In other words, God will not discipline you beyond what is necessary. You can trust him. He knows what he's doing in your life. He's, can we give God the wisdom of at least the farmer? Can we do that? Can we say, God, we trust that you're as wise as a, as a good farmer. He knows what season you're in. You understand what's being said here? God knows what season you're in. Perhaps you're in a season of preparation. Or sowing. Or watering. Or harvesting. Or threshing. But God knows what He's doing. He's wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance. You can trust His perfect timing and the wisdom of His work in your life. Thank you, God, that you know us. That you administer perfect wisdom in the way that you work in us and through us. Lord, we trust you. And I pray, God, <laughs> I just pray that you help us to not think more highly of ourselves than we ought, but that we would remain humble before you, pliable, teachable, and that we honor your word. We thank you for your wonderful counsel. We thank you for your excellent guidance. And we thank you, God, that you are wise, that you know, you recognize what season we're in. You know the exact right tool. You know exactly what you're working with. So guys, while we're sitting here in this kind of prayer posture, I would just say, listen, are you trusting in lies? Or are you anchored to the rock? The refuge of lies will not serve to save you. Build your life upon the Lord Jesus Christ. To believe in Him is to be saved.
And so if this moment's for you, if you go, man, I think I've taken refuge in lies. I've, I've made falsehood my covering. I, uh, but I want to be anchored to the rock. I want to build on the sure foundation, man, which God will lay in my life, which is Jesus Christ. I'm ready. I'm willing. I'm wanting to be saved. Well, then I want to pray for you. And so if, that, if the Lord's dealing with you, speaking to you in that capacity, doesn't matter to me how old you are, how young you are, where you've been, what you've done, what circumstances brought you to this place. Today is a day of salvation for you. Let me pray for you. If that's you, just raise your hand. Just be bold and say, yeah, man, that's me. Pray for me. And if I see your hand, I'll say it. You can put it right back down. But I just want to give you a moment here to say, you know what, man? <laughs> yeah. Father, I just want to—I just want to pray, Father, that um, God, we're just continually blown away by the timeless nature of Your Word, and as we consider what was happening so long ago historically with Isaiah and Israel and Judah, we see what's happening in our own nation presently and how we've rejected you and we've grown arrogant against you and we, we think we can do whatever we want to and we'll be okay. And yet you've said in your word that if my people who were called by my name would humble themselves and repent and turn from our wicked ways that you would hear us from heaven, that you would heal our land. And so, Father, help us not to point fingers and say, well, they this and they that, but, Lord, that you would search our hearts, that you would try us and know our insecurities, our anxieties, that you see if there be any wicked way in us, O oh God, and that you lead us in the way everlasting. We ask for a fresh outpouring of your Holy Spirit. God, help us to find ourselves in your word on the regular, God. Not just when the preacher says, let's turn in our Bibles. But that we would look to receive each day our daily bread. Thank you, Lord, for your love and your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's uh, let's rise to our feet. Guys, may the Lord bless you and, and may He be with you and may He cause His grace and His mercy to abound toward you. And may His Word dwell richly in you and just bring forth fruit for His glory. God knows the season that you're in. He's working with you with precision accuracy. He loves you so desperately. He's not going to uh, take you beyond where you need to be. Will He stretch you? Absolutely. Will He take you out of your comfort zone? Most definitely. But He loves you. You can trust Him. And in the end, He'll make you more like Him, right? Transform from glory to greater glory is by the Spirit of the Lord that we might be like our own Lord Jesus Christ. So if you have any need for prayer, we would encourage you to come on down as we dismiss and let these folks down here pray over you. We, we would just count it a privilege and an honor. So, so Father, we just say, uh, God, have your way in our lives. And we would ask, God, now that the seed of your word has been planted in the soil of our hearts, that it would bring forth fruit, much fruit that would remain for your glory. And Lord, that we not find the, the, the beautiful diadem, so to speak, in anything of ourselves or in the things of this world, but as, as we glory, we would glory in this, that we know and understand you, that you are the Lord exercising justice and righteousness in the earth. So God, have your way in our lives, and we'll give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful week. We'll catch you next time.
Bring some heathen to church with you sometime. Let them hear the gospel.